Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. God is in control. Something I've learned this week is that that is actually very true. I was talking to, to Pastor Yogi on the phone this week, and we just had to say to him, I don't know what's going on. God is in control. Sometimes in your life, there's hills and there's valleys. There's trials and there's troubles. Sometimes there's sunny days and there's dark days. Sometimes you expect things to go right and then they go wrong. Sometimes you're feeling stretched and stressed all at the same time. And God gives us a text like this for times like that to tell you that God is in control. And here's what I want from you today. Here's what I want the text to do in your life. I want this idea that God is in control to grip you every day. I want the reality that God is in control to to govern the way you live your life. I want it to give you a real sense of peace. We're going to get into the text, and you're going to see that these people in the text, Esther and Mordecai, needed to hear that. God is in control. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, During the year before each young woman's uh, turn to go to to King Ahasuerus, the harem's regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of mirth for six months and, and, and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she would be given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shazgaz, I think that's how you say it, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her, desired her or summoned her by name. I just want to say this out loud. Uh, if you want to go and like, figure out how to say all the different names... In Esther, just listen and help me each week. You're welcome to do that. That'd be a way to serve. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She had won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all the officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed the provinces from tax payments. Some of us would love that. And gave gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity, as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders, as she had always always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical records in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Azarus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The member of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, he still would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to him, to Haman, to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, the king's, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, the poor, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now you're like, we're getting a lot of dates here, a lot of months, lot, so this is really important for understanding the text. That's why the author is giving you all of these details. It's just a quick on the side how to read your Bible, right? When you see dates, when you see names, and you see that it just keeps happening and happening, those are things to mark, to pay attention to, because you're going to come back to those kinds of details, helps you understand and interpret properly. Then Haman informed the king, there's one ethnic group scattered throughout the, people, the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay three, uh, thir- 375 tons of silver to the, the official for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet, signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do it as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the, for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces and the officials of each ethnic group and written for each province in its own script uh, and the ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ezeris and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text was issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. God, we pray that you would help us to see 
that you are in control, that things happen, that come to us that are unexpected. But Lord God, that in the middle of all of those things, we can trust you. I pray you would help me to to unearth these things for my brothers and sisters, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would fill all of us in a fresh way with your spirit to be attentive to your word, to believe, God, that you are going to speak to us, that you're going to help us, that you're going to guide us, that you're going to remind us of your goodness and your, your power, your faithfulness, that we can trust you at all times. Pray you would lead now in Jesus' name. Amen. God is in. God is in. All right. Verses 12 to 14, what they do is they describe, I'm going to do some summaries for us as we go along. They describe the evil process that went into place to find the new queen. We, we learned last week they were given beauty treatments, treatments that we don't know if they actually wanted. They were given that. And then they were given one night, a one night opportunity with the king. And if that didn't go well, they were just locked up and made concubines. Joyce Baldwin, she wrote this. She said, 12 months of beauty treatment provide marriage preparation. But the sad part was that for the majority of what, what awaits them was more like widowhood than marriage. Though each girl in turn moved from the house of Haggai to that of Shazgaz, one she, once she had become a concubine, there was no guarantee that the king would remember her by name and even call her once more. Quite apart from this emotional deprivation this entailed, that this entailed, were not young men in the villages deprived of wives by their king's greed. The prestige of living in the royal palace was a small compensation for the king's neglect. See, the people of Persia lived under a selfish king. In our first message where I told you that this is a king unlike God, our king. Our king is not a selfish king. Our king is a sharing king. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. And through all of this selfishness, Esther ends up queen. In verse 17, it says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She was she won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed the provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. What you got to understand is that Esther never plans for this. This is, this, is, this is not what she, when she woke up, she wasn't like, I, I want to I go for this. This was not in her plan. This just happens to her. She doesn't go and pursue this. And what it tells you is that the people of God sometimes end up in unexpected roles. Think about it. Mary didn't think she was going to be the mother of, that was not her plan, that she was going to be the mother of Jesus. She was, I'm just going to marry Joseph. I'm going to go on with my life. And God shows up and says, no, nah, we're going this way. Moses didn't think he was going to lead the people out of Egypt, right? Poor Moses. Moses, Moses, Mo Moses, you're going. I don't want to go. Moses, you're going. But God, I don't want to go. All right, we'll send your brother with you. But you're going. We end up in unexpected. You might be in an unexpected role now in your life. You might end up in an unexpected role in the future. But what you got to understand is that wherever God places you, that is where he plans to use you. For his glory. You are there for his glory. You're there for his purposes. You also have to understand that wherever God places you, you're there with his support. Here's the big one. 
Wherever God places you, you are there for your sanctification. Because that's the goal of your life, your sanctification. That's what God wants from you and for you, to make you like Jesus. Verses 19 to 23, the writer brings up Mordecai again. And then in verse 19, we're told that when, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate, so you understand, this is where they kind of did judicial things and government business. And so they actually think that Mordecai may have had a government job. So he's sitting at the king's gate, just going about his business. And then verse 21 says, during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported to Queen Esther. Pay attention to this. He reported it to Queen Esther. She told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both were hanged on the gallows. So this guy's a real terrible human being. But they were both hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical records in the king's presence. So Mordecai hears what's going on. He, he goes out of his way. He brings it to Esther and he says, you got to tell the king, somebody, somebody that wants to get him. She does that and it saves his life. And then the author starts talking about this guy named Haman. It says, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Now you're like, okay, there's, there's a switch. We're talking about Mordecai, then all of a sudden we're talking about Haman. And what the author's actually doing is he wants you, to, wants you to ask, why is Haman being promoted and not Mordecai? He wants you to slow down and ask that question. The narrator is doing that, saying, why is that happening? See, the historian Herodotus, he said this, Persian rulers were known for rewarding loyalty. They were given promotions, tax exemptions, which we all want. Right? All right. Just me, I guess. <laughs> and they were even exempt from bowing down to nobles. And so Mordecai gets none of that. He saves his life. They record it and they move on. He gets nothing. And what you got to understand is sometimes God's people can be unfairly overlooked. That can happen. In your life, you might be deserving of a promotion that never comes. In your life, you might, there might be an opportunity that you feel like, I deserve that, and you never get it. Maybe some recognition, some respect. In this life, God's love is promised. Comfort and fairness is not. Yeah, oh yeah. You live in a broken world. The love of God is a guarantee. Everything going your way, everything working out right, that is not promised. And so you're like, all right, Mark, fine. But what, what should I do 
when I feel overlooked? Should I just, should I just take it? Nah. Here's a couple of things. I think it's coming up. Talk to the Lord. God is in control. Haven't we been saying that? And so we talk to God. The Bible says God is a refuge, the one we can pour our heart out to when things make no sense. Then you talk to the people of God. They will help you process the pain. And then you talk to your own soul. Don't you see examples of that in Scripture? Soul, I know you feel overlooked, but God sees you. Soul, I know you feel mistreated, but God will reward you. Soul, I know that we live in a broken world, but let's continue to keep doing good because if we do not give up, we know that we will reap a great reward. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself of what is true. So Haman is on the scene and the king commands everyone to bow down to him. And I, I told you, Mordecai, is having none of that. Verse 3 says, the members of the, of the royal staff and the king's aid asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They're like, bro, don't you understand who this guy is? He just kills people for fun. Why are you, why are you disobeying his law? It says, when they had warned him, so they're like, you know, this is a bad move. When they had warned him day after day, he still would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. So they sell out, Haman, they sell out Mordecai, right? Sometimes the people in your life who are asking you all kinds of questions, they're not really for you. They you got to wonder, what's their motive? Let's go see if this will be tolerated. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. And when he had learned of Mordecai's ethnic, ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the kingdom. It says, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the king, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in the month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. I want you to notice that the writer keeps reminding you of that Mordecai is a Jew. And he also gives you the ethnic identity of Haman. Did you notice it? In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls him Agagite. See, Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. Turn to somebody and tell them, that's important. Say it. That's important. Oh, and it is. Let me show you. The, so a brief history of a long beef. Cho said she wasn't sure about the grammar, but that's what I put up. The Amalekites attacked Israel after, uh, after the exodus from Egypt. So as soon as God's people were released from bondage and slavery, they, these are the first people to go at them. And then God commanded to defend themselves and destroy the Amalekites when they entered the promised land. So you can look all these up when you get home. And, said, and then when they went to war again, King Saul disobeyed God and spared Agag, the Amalekite king. So again, so again we want to apply our Bibles well. We've got to sort of look at the history and look at 
all of Scripture. So to help you, you got to go backwards. Doing a little work here. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. It says, when you get there, say I'm there. All right. Kim told me that I don't wait long enough when I ask you guys to do that, so I'm just going to pause a little longer. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man, there it is again, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. <laughs> now, he says, oh boy, because Kish is Saul's father. And so what the author is telling you here is that Mordecai is related to Saul. And so Saul's disobedience to God has left a problem for Mordecai. Right? Don't we all know sometimes that thing that you, you're like, I should have dealt with that. And then you don't deal with it. A couple years later, just comes right back and it's a problem again. So he leaves a problem for Mordecai. Here's, the, here's two things I want you to take from this. When you disobey God, it doesn't just affect you. Disobedience is like throwing a big rock in Lake Ontario. It creates ripples in your life and in the life of others. And that's why when God tells us to obey, it's called an act of love, an act of love for God and an act of love for others. When, you're disobe when you disobey, it doesn't just affect you. Here's the other thing. When you're tempted by sin, when you're tempted to disobey, just ask yourself, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? You're like, where does that come from? Think about Saul. Think about the legacy he has left. He left a legacy of disobedience. He left a legacy of pride. He left a legacy of jealousy. He left a legacy of paranoia. That's what he's remembered for. If you died today, what would people remember you for? If you died today, what are you doing that would affect somebody who's going to come in your family line? Again, we have to stop being people who just think in this little box about ourselves and start thinking about all the other people around us who matter to us, who love us, who are dependent on us, who are trusting us, who are coming after us. We have to be people who would take the long view in life. This beef is an old ethnic rivalry. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It says, and when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity. I want you to notice also the Bible is always saying ethnic identity. You know why? Because there's one human race with multiple ethnicities. That's what it keeps highlighting. It seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. See, remember when Haman told Esther to, to, to keep her identity a secret? This might be the reason why. Because he knows there's some, there's some lingering anti-Semitic views in Susa. See, you've heard me say this before. Racism's not new. It's an old, old problem. And here's the other thing. This shows you that it can be committed by any ethnic group. 
Not just one. It is not new. And here's the thing. When you see racism, when you experience racism, you should never stay silent. You've heard me say that before. You stand up, you speak up, you help. Haman goes to work because he's racist to get rid of the Jews. Verse 7 says he casts lots. Now lots were just clay dice. And he, he's trying to figure out the day he's going to destroy the Jews. And it says that he does this in the month of Nisan. So he does this in the month of Nisan. And then the, the author, we're going to come back to that, gives us a reminder that the empire was under a foolish king. In verse nine, 8 to 9, Haman manipulates him. I told you, he's a manipulator. He gets manipulated. If you play people, sometimes you end up getting played. He manipulates him. Here's how he does it. He manipulates him by telling them that there, you can read this when you get home. There is a random ethnic group living by their own laws. He does this in verse 8. Notice, and he never says who the group is. He just sort of keeps that back. And then he manipulates him by telling him, telling them that they're, they're engage, not engaging with other people. Well, that's not true. Mordecai is at the king's gate doing his job probably. But he's like, they're just separate. They're not hanging out with anybody. And then he does this last one. He tells him he will give him some money. Verse 9, he says, I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for the deposit in the treasury. Now, you got to think about this. Remember what we talked about last week. The king's money is short. He just went to war. He lost all his dollars. So he struggled. So this, Haman's like, he's trying to bribe him. He's like, I'll, I'll put money in the treasury. And they're like, how's he going to get the money? He's going to do, he's going to take all the Jews, their money. That's how he's going to pay for it. When he destroys them, he's going to take, plunder them, the word's there, and, and put it in. He tries to bribe him. Now here is something that should not surprise you at this point with this king. The man goes for it. He's just, the bro, he's just not smart. No, seriously. Every time I come around this guy, I'm like, he, the man is just... Verse 10. The king removed his signet, signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. So when he takes off his ring and gives it to Haman, he is saying that all of my authority is now transferred to you. You can do whatever you want. He gives it to him and says... Uh, he gave it to Haman, the, the Agagite, the enemy. Now the author adds something. The enemy of the Jews. He's not just Haman, the Agagite. He's now an enemy. Now you got to think about this. I told you the man's not smart. He approves the destruction of an entire ethnic group with no investigation. Serious. Come on. Don't leave me up here. No investigation. And here's the thing. The group that he just agreed to annihilate includes the man who just saved his life. Here's the next one, because I'm telling you the man's not smart. It includes the woman he just married. And he loves her more than anybody else. The man is a... F Look. See, my mom knows. 
he doesn't think. And Haman gets what he wants. It says the, the, the royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, of the first month. And the order was written exactly as Haman had commanded it. I'm going to do something here because it's important. The, the word writing in Esther, you might not pay attention to it. You might miss it, but it's mentioned 63 times in the entire book. Every time something happens, it was written down. It was written down. And all the laws were written down. Here's the thing, though. Every law or decree that was written down was, was written down in a way that disempowered people. And what I'm trying to show you with that is just because there's a law in the land does not mean it's moral, ethical, or just. And sometimes we live as citizens and we just like, whatever, that new thing that just got passed, we pay no attention. But it's our civic duty as good citizens and good Christians. Yes, this is not our home, but we're living here. To pay attention to what is going on, what is written down, to actually pray for lawmakers, to pray that some Christians would step into those professions. So that good laws would be passed because laws should be written carefully with thought and in a way that actually blesses all people, not just some. Here's the other thing. To, I know there's some writers. I'm looking at one right in front of me there, Rochelle Watt. You want a good book? Talk to her after. But the writer's in the room. God wants you to write things that builds hearts and minds. Not things that destroy lives. He's given you a gift to use for his glory and the blessing and benefit of others. So Haman is doing his thing and it says all of this happens. Verse 15, sorry, verse 13, we'll go there. The letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jewish people. Just think about those words. Young and old, women and children. He wants everyone gone. And plunder their possessions on a single day. On the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month, a copy of this, the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. That's all the, the guys. They sat down. Think about how the evil that they just decided. Think about the amount of lives that are going to be destroyed by what they've, they've just, they're planning. And they sit down and drink. Watch this. Watch, watch the contrast. While the city of Susa was in confusion. In confusion. What's going on is that the people are, are actually saying, because Jews are, are hearing about this, other nations are hearing about this, some of them are probably friends, and they're just saying, how are you going to survive this? How are you, how are you going to get through this? Haman thinks he's in control. But God is in control. God is in control. That's why the people of God can be confident in God's deliverance. I'm going to show you something because it's important. In, in chapter 2, you can come, Sanjay. In chapter 2, verse 16, the narrator for a while is giving you Persian calendar names. 
And then in chapter 3, verse 7, he starts giving you Hebrew calendar names. Karen Job, she wrote this. She said, Haman cast lots in the month of Nisan, the month the Jews celebrated the Passover. When God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, Haman will have to wait 11 months for the day to attack the Jews, but he immediately sends out the decree. Watch this. The edict of death is sent out on the 13th day of the first month, which is ironically the very eve of the Passover. And so a bunch of Jews, maybe they're together, use your imagination, sitting in a room, and they're actually terrified by what they just read. They're, they're confused. They're, they're struggling, wondering, how are we going to get through all of this? How are we going to survive it? But then there's that old church mother who stands up. When all the young people are all afraid, when they don't understand the history, that old mother stands up and she says, brothers and sisters, we've been here before. Brothers and sisters, this is scary. But remember the last time when Pharaoh tried to destroy us, God delivered us. She said, we've been here before. She looks at them and she says, brothers and sisters, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the, in the valley, when things go wrong, when you're expecting them to go right, when things go left and you don't know what you're going to do, you remember, brothers and sisters, we've been here before because God is in control. He got us through once and he's going to get us through again. And let me tell you, you're sitting here because God did. He got them through. Here's what you got to think about in this. Now I know, so, anyway, here's what you got to think about in this. If all of the Jews are destroyed and annihilated, you don't have a savior. That's what's on the line. But God is in control and God got them through because you're sitting here because a savior came from these Jewish people who gave his life to rescue you, who saved you. And now you're sitting here and you should be full of peace in the midst of the struggle. Do you know why? Because Jesus defeated sin and death and his resurrection proved it. And his resurrection guarantees your resurrection and my resurrection. And so there might be a day when you die. There might be a day when somebody threatens your life because of your faith. But in the middle of that threat and that fear, you say, God is in control. Somebody might tell you, life's going to end very quickly. But even if you die prematurely, do you know what happens? You fall into the hands of your loving Savior. Because of Jesus Christ, death is defeated. And what that should do, it should give you peace every day. Every day. God is in control. Because of Jesus, because he got them through your deliverance, my deliverance from death is secure. In verse 8, Haman says, it is not in the king's interest to tolerate the Jews. The literal translation of this is, it's not in your interest to cause them to rest. 
It's not in your interest to allow them to live in peace, to allow them to rest. And yet, when you go all the way to the end of Esther, Esther chapter 9, verses 17 to 18, the holiday they celebrate, Purim, it literally is a, a rest. They got their rest. They got their rest. You and I will get ours. God is in control. And it should grip you every day. It should govern the way you live your life. I guarantee you something's going to come to you this week or next week or next month or next year that you're going to have to sit there and say, God is in control. God is in control. And allow that to give you a sense of peace and trust in God. That even though I can't always see it, God is working behind the scenes. He's in control of my life. He got this people group through. He'll get us through. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you praise that we're always in your sovereign hands. God, you are in control. And some people feel that in a different way today because of what's going on in their lives. Some people, Lord God, don't have a full appreciation of what that reality means right now. But I pray, Lord God, that when the, the trials come, when the confusion, confusing things come, when the unexpected thing comes, they would remember that, that you are in control, that we, God, are secure in your love, that we are secure in your arms, and that we can be secure in our faith. And God, maybe there's a thing that we are waiting on. We're needing you, Lord God, to come through. I pray you would help us because you are in control to believe God for it. God, you can do the impossible. You can move that unmovable thing. I pray you'd help us to believe you for it, oh God. Father, we have looked at a people group who, in the face of a real trial, they were in confusion. But God, you've shown over and over your faithfulness to your people. And so I pray, Lord God, when our confusing moments come, that we would trust you, that we would hold on to our faith in you, that we would hold on to the reality that you are over all things, sovereign over all things, can be trusted in all things. We love your mercy, God. We love your goodness. Help us to trust you, to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.